0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? All right. It is a Monday. So doing pretty good for a Monday, I'd say. Uh, also joining us today, uh, because we are talking about the the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what uh, is going to Happened looking forward at the Supreme Court with President Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. So joining us is our favorite legal expert, Tori Slattin. Tori, how are you?
1: I'm good. Still getting used to being referred to as a legal expert, but very flattered and happy to be here.
0: You've always been Peach Pod's legal expert.
1: That, no, that's a really sweet compliment. I'm glad I'm your go-to person.
0: <laughs> so on today's show, we haven't gotten to do this yet. So we wanted to take a little more time to reflect on the legal and cultural legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then we also wanted to react to President Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett on the court. And And first, let's start with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy here. Tori, because of the political implications of Ginsburg's passing, this was a conversation that I think really got overlooked. Um, Obviously, the stakes on the on the court for Amy Coney Barrett and and how that nomination are going to is going to play out. Those stakes are really high. But I think Ginsburg's life is obviously worth worth taking some time to reflect on. So what are your reflections on on the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the life that she lived?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's been kind of hard uh, to face the reality of it. I think I got into my head that she was just going to live forever. Um, She was one of my heroes for a lot of reasons and one of the reasons I went to law school. And I think not only was she a really incredible person in the civil rights movement and someone who was really influential kind of in her own right, but she's also objectively one of the best judges on the court and her legal mind and her writing is really going to be missed.
0: Luke, how about you? We, you and I haven't gotten to have this conversation yet either. What are, What are you thinking about as as we think about the life that Ruth Bader Ginsburg lived?
2: Uh, I have a lot of very complicated thoughts, to be honest, because there's the, you know, frustration with the fact that this is how her legacy had to end. You know, because for a long time. I think uh, I thought a lot like she did that, you know, this trailblazer for women's rights and just equality in general, not because I I think, and we can get into this, but like Ruth Bader Ginsburg did a lot for men too, not just women and like helping redefine gender roles and open up opportunities for everyone. Uh, And I think uh, that should not be ignored. And so the fact that uh, There's this opportunity, you know, on Earth too, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was uh, able to retire uh, with the uh, first woman president appointing her successor. I mean, that that's a great story and would have been a great reality to be in, but it's not the one we're in. And so, uh, I've just been, I, I've hated that uh, for her, but also for the country and just history in general. And I think it, and of course, we will get into this, but her most likely successor at this point is someone who disagrees with just about everything she worked for. So that that's a problem, too.
0: Tori, Luke alluded to this, but to me, you can kind of take a look at Ginsburg's legal career kind of in, in two chapters, the first chapter of which is, is her time as a lawyer in the 1970s, writing briefs and cases that would appear before the Supreme Court um, and other courts that that really changed the way discrimination on the basis of sex is um, it happens in the law, and in the way in which she had an impact on that. And, and then, obviously, the second chapter is her her time on the Supreme Court. What do you think? You know, what comes to mind for you about the legacy of her legal career before she took a seat on the court, and, and all those cases that she was involved in in the seventies?
1: I mean, I think it's amazing that she had a legal career at all in the time she um, was, would have been developing one. I think it's amazing that she was one of nine women at Harvard Law when she went and whenever she graduated, even though she was in top of her class and on law review and had done all these incredible things. And from so many, she would have been like the model law student, the person that everybody wanted to hire, but because she was a woman, because she was jewish because she had a family she couldn't even get a job as a lawyer initially coming out of law school and so i think it's something that we take for granted that she didn't always have really the career that she wanted she started out as a professor and then she had to really really work her way in and i think it was with that vindiction that she was able to get to break so many barriers because she saw firsthand how unfair the system was and was in a position to do something about it, unlike a lot of women at the time. So I think it's really easy to kind of see trailblazers when we look back and it's like, well, that would have happened anyway, and forget like what a positive con like what a positive impact one person can really have. And I think her time as an in, in her early careers, whenever like she first started arguing in front of the Supreme Court, whenever she was really like making her own way and showing the world what um What a female lawyer actually looks like is some of her best time, I think.
0: And is it notable to either of you that her approach during this chapter in in her career was often to take on the cases of male plaintiffs and to point out uh, instances of of laws or application of the law that actually discriminated against men in a way to demonstrate that discrimination on the basis of sex hurts hurts both men and women. I, I, I didn't know that about the way in which she approached those cases in the seventies until I was reading a lot of these, uh, recaps of her life. Um, what do you think about that approach that she took?
2: I, I think it is a testament to knowing how to play her, her judges basically, and know how to talk to their sympathies because, you know, in a society that was as a sexist as the one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg found herself in, it's not surprising that she had more success making arguments about, oh, look at what these poor men are going through, rather than you know being yet another person saying that women don't have equal treatment in, in the law. I,
1: th- I think it just shows even her feminism was ahead of feminism. <laughs> She, you know, that's what feminism has become—is this way of attacking the patriarchy in a way so that everyone can benefit, including men. But I think even that theory was being worked out at the time, and she was able to, I think, capture it in a way that was really exceptional for um, it, it. It was a very unique approach that she took, and it was also just shows how brilliant she was in that argue things objectively even though like you can like scream like this is unfair, but if you take a different approach then you might be able to like help somebody see your point of view. And I think that's the brilliance behind her arguments.
0: Is there, I, one of the quotes from her that kind of stuck with me in, in reading coverage about her life was, um, something she said, I believe it was to a group of Harvard law students, um, where she said fight for what you believe in but do so in a way that will encourage others to follow you or or to join you. In some ways that combined with the approach that she took in these cases where she was highlighting discrimination against men as, as a part of a legal strategy that sort of approach I don't to me feels just like a little bit out of step with the way that activists approach things these days. I mean it would be hard for me to imagine, like the case that achieves marriage equality, dealing with some sort of like legal issue that actually impacted straight couples, like I don't, you know, so much of like activist politics today is about centering people who are harmed by, you know, systems of injustice that we have. To me, I don't know, there was just some sort of like, disconnect there. Does that Approach stand out to y'all, or are there lessons to take from from that quote of hers to fight for what you believe in, but but do it in a way that would encourage others to follow you?
1: I mean, I want to hear Luke's thoughts on this too, but I think we're able to argue the way we argue today because of trailblazers like her, um bringing some of those ideas into the mainstream, which opened up a lot of doors for new ideas and. I mean, today, you can do so in a way that others want to follow you by making more, by centering people who were historically more marginalized. I think at the time, she had to appeal a certain way. And so I think it's not just arguing the way that she did back then, but I think it's arguing in the most intelligent way possible that will get people on your side. And that changed over time because of her.
2: No, I I think Tori is exactly right there. And to like put it another way, the reason we were able to argue the way we argue now is because ruth baker ginsburg was successful and won her court cases and you know again the reason she did it was not like just solely because she wanted to i guess argue these cases in a way that feel less controversial or feel like backwards today it's like because of the society she found herself in and the requirements of uh convincing the all nine men that she was facing that like, this is a problem and you should think about it. She had to make arguments that they would agree with. And so, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for her, but I would guess that's not the argument she would have made in an ideal world, you know, to, to put it uh, in terms that, you know, resonate with me. She wanted to win her cases. <laughs> she wanted to be a successful lawyer and like move, make, move the ball on these issues. And so she was willing to make the arguments that would put her in the best position to do that.
1: And the fact that she was doing it in front of a panel of nine men just shows what she was up against in itself,
0: so a lot of this occurred in in the early stages of her career, but she was put on the Supreme Court by uh, President Clinton in nineteen ninety three and then she spent what is that seventeen twenty twenty seven years on the court after that, and so there's an entire body of her legal work that that comes after she's appointed to the Supreme Court for a question for each of you what do you think the legacy of her time on the court will be you know are there particular decisions or dissents that she wrote when she was on the court that resonate with you that you think you know her writing or or her arguments that that will stand the test of time even though and we'll get to this in a second even though we're looking uh looking in the short term at a relatively dark time for, for progressives on the court. Do you, what, what do you think from her time on the court will stay in the test of time?
1: I think she knew that she was ahead of her time and that's why she wrote these long dissents because even though they weren't law at the moment and you know, she might've been on the losing side of that particular argument, but I think the body of work she left behind is a roadmap for future progressives to follow And so it would have been easy, really easy for her to say like, yes, I disagree with this argument, write like three paragraphs and move on. But she wrote these 20 page dissents, I think, and that will become her legacy because she paved the way for, um, for what new progressive ideas.
2: I think that is correct, and also I'd say her legacy is Justin Kagan and Justin Sotomayor. Their their existence, you know, of people who can argue the positions that they argue and the way that they argue, uh, I, I think, are directly tied to the success that Ginsburg Hag. And then, you know, the 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 one thing I would say is that unless we are about to enter a dystopia that even I cannot uh, predict. Most of her pre-Supreme court work is going to be left intact and built upon, I hope, and and think truly. And as far as her dissents, I I really think when, you know, hopefully uh, not when I'm 80, but sometime in my lifetime, if Citizens United is overturned, if the Voting Rights Act is uh, brought back into a place where it could actually be workable, or if a new version of the Voting Rights Act is not overturned, I suspect there will be lots of citing to her decisions and she's set up a framework for other people to follow in the future by making good arguments and by making arguments that moderate can and you know moderate to slightly conservative people could agree with i I think the way that she frames things is in a way that uh could be coalition building for the eventual the hopeful eventuality because of course a lot of work has to be done uh, before we get there of uh setting the you know court's jurisprudence where she wanted it to be if if we get to live in the world that uh ruth barry Ginsburg wants to get into and the court go in the directions that she wanted i she her work even in the dissents will be a, a big part of that
1: one of my favorite moments of her on the court actually and she was on the winning side of this one was um obergefeld so one of my favorite moments when it was when the questioning was, it it was in the questioning phase. And she made the argument that marriage was not at all the way the founders intended because marriage was initially founded to be, to make women property. And she was like, thank goodness that we've moved on from the original, um, how we originally saw marriage and thank goodness we're seeing it as an evolving entity because it was so backwards. And I really like that because it was taking her own feminism And it was extending it like that logic into new territory. And I think like that little things like that, that she was able to tie in her own experiences as somebody who did face a lot of oppression and then apply it to others. um, It's like little things like that, that I think she'll be really well remembered for.
0: I think another thing that she'll be well remembered for is even if the legacy of her arguments does not, shift the cord in in sort of the medium to long term. You know, some of her dissents inspired legislation. The the first bill that President Obama signed um that dealt with uh pay discrimination was largely based on her dissent in a case that that shortened the time period uh women had to to challenge discrimination in their pay for for their employers. And I think when you look at the the Shelby County decision on on the Voting Rights Act and the dissent that she wrote, I mean, the last few years have largely proven what she wrote in the dissent right. I mean, if she said that, you know, getting rid of that section of the Voting Rights Act was like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm when you're not getting wet. I mean, right now we're soaked. And she was right about that seven years ago. And so, you know, I don't know that 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 is an argument that's going to be received well by the court in the short to medium term, but if if progressives control government after this election, the the voting rights protections that are put into place and, and the ones that are already being considered and have been considered in the US House under democratic control, I mean, those are largely, you know, stem from arguments that she made in, in the dissent in that case. The one thing I'm left with though, and and I think we've kind of touched on this, but maybe to to speak to it more directly is she had a brilliant legal mind. She had a lot of success in the courts and she wrote a lot of strong dissents that will serve the basis for progressive uh, victories in the future. But it's not common that like people who are have brilliant legal minds also become these like cultural icons. And so why do y'all think late in, late in her life, she became the notorious RBG this like uh really notable cultural figure on top of all of her legal accomplishments.
1: I mean, part of it is that she entered the court as a moderate and then she got more progressive throughout her time on the court. And part of that is because the court went back and forth and it, it, by the end of her stint was actually becoming more conservative. And so she had to be the liberal voice. Um, and part of it was like her own ideology evolved. And I think that as that happened, more people started paying attention and she started having a really active voice where her dissents got longer and her arguments got, I think a lot better. And so I think that was part of it. And then I think just because the internet exists and it's, she's a really lovable character. And so if you get, if you pay any attention at all to politics, then, you know, she, she's clever. She's fun. She was so, some of her um, interviews, she's just adorable. And I think people just started paying attention.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. And I think another aspect of it was just the, fact that due to the area and due to people starting to pay more attention to her, her very unique, very compelling story got uh, heard of in a wider way that I don't think people were, were even aware of when uh, Clinton appointed her. And like, I, I can even back this up with my own personal um, experience with, with her in, in law school, which was, you know... As, as is very appropriate, I want to be fair, a lot of people say Scalia is a great writer, and he is a great writer. And I would find myself in law school in the early days having to read cases and, and have to read Scalia majority opinions. And, you know, he's a very good writer and he makes good arguments. I'd be like, I, I don't want to agree with this, but I find myself agreeing with it. And then I would, you know, flip the page at the end and it would be a Ruth Baker Ginsburg dissent. I would be like, all right, and then I, and then I agree. It's like, oh, yeah, I am still a liberal. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, it's like her argument would just, like, completely deconstruct everything that he said. And I, I think um, both in her, like, I think her friendship <laughs> really with him was genuine and evolved. And uh, she probably learned a lot from him and uh, his ability to make, uh, you know, interesting legal opinions with some good turns of phrase, uh, like the umbrella one that you mentioned earlier, Kyle. And so I think, um, I think that's a big part of why her legacy be, you know, grew and uh, be became what it was just her ability to take on this, the conservative majority on the court, and to be a voice to a lot of other people's anxieties that even while, you know, the majority uh, ruled that day uh, that that does not mean that they are completely right. And there's lots of flaws in their reasoning. And I think, especially you know, in the past four years, there's been a lot of frustration uh, on my end and a lot of other people's end of just the inability to make progress and, uh, you know, frankly, like a feeling like, like you're crazy, <laughs> that, you know, you have these strong beliefs, and you're fighting for things, and they just keep not working out. Um, and I think having her on the court and being a great writer and a great understander, really, of where the uh, conservatives on the court were coming from, and being able to break down their arguments and explain why they are wrong. I think just having someone who's able to articulate that so well, was a, Great value to the court and the country, and to uh, you know, expiring lawyers like myself.
1: It's really funny you said that, actually, because i I got really emotional when Scalia died, and I think part of it was because, and maybe you feel the same way. I felt really lucky to be able to be in law school while those two were on the court because they were both such amazing writers, and they argued. You could hear that in their arguments. They were they had discussed it amongst themselves and argued with each other. And then the opinions were better because of it. And I it was a really, really sad day when we lost Scalia. It was even sadder when we lost RBG. But just losing that period of the court was also really hard because I thought it was a really interesting balanced court.
2: Yeah, no, I, I really I do agree. I think there's there's always the um it was you know, back in my day it was better. But I, I do do kind it really, of feel it
1: was it really was better back in our day. Though. That's right.
2: Yeah, yeah. We had really... the
1: best court.
2: <laughs> That's right, and yeah, you know, the composition of that court was was so good in the sense that you know, Kennedy was a true swing voice, and on a lot of issues that really matter, he was able to, you know, help that. And yeah, the the thing I, I find myself thinking though is, despite like the great argumentation that happened on that court a lot of a lot of terrible things (laughs) happened on that court too but you know at least at least they explained it well
1: yeah well i think both sides there was no no case was taken for granted both sides really had to argue and had to argue hard and i think there was like this feeling that like it was possible to swing them both ways which again ended up with horrible decisions that were going to have repercussions forever but some of the best decisions the court ever made also came from that um iteration
2: yeah, I, I think that is a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, they, they were, it really was the best back in our day, is the conclusion. So unfortunately, the court is
0: going to enter a new phase here. And on Saturday, President Trump formally nominated Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ginsburg on the court. Barrett, who is 48, she is a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and is more widely known as as a conservative legal scholar who taught uh, law at Notre Dame for 15 years. Barrett is a favorite of social conservatives who view her as a pretty reliable vote to advance their agenda on social issues like abortion, LGBTQ rights, and gun ownership. Um, First thoughts from both of you, just the reaction of her being the nominee from President Trump and your initial thoughts on what Uh, her ascension to the Supreme Court means for the court going forward?
1: I was not surprised because Trump has said like semi-publicly multiple times um, that this seat specifically belonged to Barrett. Um, He got criticized actually by some people on the right whenever he didn't nominate her under Kavanaugh. And that was essentially like the deal he made was that this was her seat. Um, There is like some talk right before it's like, well, like there's some other contenders, but like, I wasn't very shocked. I think it's gonna, it's gonna be different. I think it's a lot of people enter the court moderate and then they kind of find their voice. I think she's gonna enter the court extremely conservative and become immediately one of the most right of the right people on the court. She has like parts of her record are mixed actually. Like she has like a couple good decisions on immigration overall. I'm an immigration attorney by the way for those who haven't listened before. but overall, it's not her record is pretty bad. It's, it's not bad. It, it, it's just so far right wing. And it's way more than what I think we're used to from young judges. So it's just gonna be different. Um, and she's gonna she's not even 50. She's gonna be on the court a long time.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I had a very similar reaction to Tori. I put money down literally on her being the nominee, uh, Trump's nominee, just because he had literally said publicly that he was saving her for the seat. So i got to be stupid to not do that. Um, uh, so, you know, that. not surprised. The The thing I think, just starting off, is that I think we've learned from Gorsage, especially that nobody turns out the way you think they're going to, and that judges are going to be un- unpredictable when you give them a lifetime term. Uh, and I don't think she's going to be any different. And, you know, just to like highlight, what makes me think that already about her is in, you know, thinking about today's show, <laughs> I saw an article, that uh, from Politico that was called, uh, you know, like famous icon Amy Comey Barrett. And I'm just like, what hot hell is this? <laughs> and I read it and it actually was not what I expected it to be at all, which was basically making this argument. It was actually interestingly reminiscent of what we were just talking about with Ruth Baker Ginsburg in that her like family life situation is directly attributable to like the work that our RBG did because her husband is also a lawyer and a pretty successful one from what I've heard. And that they have like both gone in times where they were home with the kids. And uh, you know, sometimes he's been at home with the kids, and apparently late, you know, lately since she became a judge, and I'm sure now he's he's carrying more more of those responsibilities. And then there was times where she was. And as I'm a Tory,
1: we're pretty low for feminism, though. If that's
2: feminist. Yeah, no. I mean, I I um, agree. Yeah,
1: she co-parented.
2: I agree, but you know, we've slowly been slipping, you know, back to the 1970s uh, as as this presidency has gone on. So uh, on that front, I agree. That's a low bar, but it's still there. I guess is is one way of thinking of it. Um, and then uh, the the other thing. I mean, just the fact that like people are making that argument is fascinating to me. That was the primary thing I wanted to point out with that. But the, where I was, where I was going with it exactly though, was just the, um, just the, just the fact that those aspects of her record exist and just thinking about her record in that way. And, you know, what Tori was mentioning about how some of her decisions on immigration issues, which, you know, from what I've heard are very important to Donald Trump, um, you don't know how people are gonna turn out exactly. And so that's that's one area of unpredictability. And then some of her unpredictability also lies in where she has publicly discussed her her legal ideas. And I, I think it's it's interesting because what we know about her publicly in the writing that she did, since she was a professor for quite some time, makes her more unpredictable rather than less, even though she's like written down on paper what she believes. Yeah, it was interesting to me.
0: You know, a lot of times when you're considering a judge as they get elevated to the Supreme Court, you're looking at their judicial record, how they've written in cases that they've ruled on. In Amy Coney Barrett's case, she's written a lot on, on the law and put a lot of her theories out there, but she's done so as an academic and not in the context of specific cases. Uh, but I think the maybe the place to start, I'm I'm ready for you all to unleash your legal wonkery on our listeners here. And maybe the place to start is her view of stare decisis. And so just to, uh, to get all of our, our listeners together here, um, tell us what stare decisis is and how important Barrett, Barrett's views are on stare decisis, how important those views are as we consider what her impact on the court is likely to be.
1: So stare decisis is the idea that there's an inherent truth in the world, and each court is working towards that inherent truth. And so when they find a the truth, you have to honor it with the next decision. So it's where we get the idea of setting a precedent for something. So if a judge rules something in a circuit, then everyone in that circuit is bound by it. When the Supreme Court rules something, then everyone in the country is bound by it. And there have been times that the court has set horrible precedents and then have been overturned um because they're like well that wasn't the inherent truth and so now we're going to find a truthier truth than that truth um my impression of amy coney baird is that she really honors it when it fits her agenda (laughs) and i do think she has an agenda and does not honor she has said publicly that she does not think grow is good president and that she would not necessarily honor it if she got the chance and i think that's what everyone thinks of when they think of her um and that's been her most controversial and the thing she's been most outspoken on. Um, Luke probably has a much better explanation.
2: Well, what's what's so funny to me is that I actually literally read probably the most recent overbearing stare stare decisis decision uh, of late which was June medical service which was a abortion case and it was uh, one where uh, Chief Justice Roberts joined the majority and basically his whole entire opinion is I did this because stare decisis and uh, I and the basic thing that happened there is that the um The court had recently decided another case called Whole Woman's Health and said that this Texas Texas law was uh, creating undue burden on uh, women's ability to get an abortion. And then literally Louisiana is like, oh, that's cool. We're going to pass the exact same law. And then for some reason, it got back to the Supreme Court. That big some reason is actually just because Justice Kennedy retired and uh, Justice Kavanaugh was put on the court. And um Roberts was just like no this is sloppy legal reasoning we are supposed to stand by things that we've previously decided and you know do better next time kids um and and you know to stand by things that are decided that's that's what the definition of it that he provides in in that case and she just doesn't seem to think that's very important and it's not just in like the Roe example it's in a lot of other places as well and that's just really really important to legal profession as a stable institution that is predictable um as far as like who really doesn't believe in it is uh you know our our good friend justice clarence thomas he basically (laughs) thinks almost all everything the court has decided is wrong and that we should go back to the horse and buggy days and be farmers um that is just slightly exaggeration as tory can tell, you know can can testify to um and I, I'm not sure how she will be as a judge, but at least as a legal writer, as a thinker, when she was a professor, she seemed to be closer to Thomas than Roberts on that uh, equation. And I think that is the key thing that makes her very, very unpredictable is just that she really, really thinks there's little value in standing by things as they were decided if she thinks they're, they're bad law
1: and conveniently everything she thinks is bad law aligns with her personal views um so maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh again Luke has pointed out we don't know what kind of judge she's going to be even like my least favorite judge who is Clarence Thomas who I I think is the worst and I really hate that he's on the court he has surprised me at times he's like come out and like I think used some of his own experiences and actually has like swung the court left a few times. So we don't really know what she's going to be like. We haven't seen her on the Supreme Court. I don't have high hopes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, just a second that he's not my least favorite justice. I've said nice things about him on this program, but you know, Justice Gorsuch has, you know, been very surprising at times and uh, in a lot of interesting legal areas. and. I, I think I think the the thing though is that some of those were somewhat predictable for Gorsuch and just things he had previously written and decisions he had previously made. Whereas as as we've been discussing, her previous writing gives me a lot to worry about where she would uh, take take the court.
1: I mean, and it it's following suit. A lot of like presidents early on in their career tend to nominate more moderate um, more moderate justices to see kind of like what the Senate is capable of and see what they're able to push through. And like, he's been, Trump's been following that. Gorsuch just pretty moderate. And then Kavanaugh is a step to the right. And then Barrett, hopefully the final evolution. If Trump isn't elected, then we'll really see how right we can go. But I mean, he's followed suit pretty much. And so I, yeah, I don't feel great about what's to come. What
0: are specific to the issue of abortion? What do you think the trajectory of the court might be? with her on it. I mean, Luke alluded to these two cases um, where basically opponents of abortion rights in recent years have tried to bring cases before the court that don't outlaw abortion, don't necessarily bring up a a case that would get at an opportunity to revisit and overturn the precedent in Roe. Um, these cases instead place what are basically regulatory barriers on abortion providers and Get at this question. If I'm if I'm remembering my cases correctly, it, it gets at a question at a 1992 case Casey versus Planned Parenthood, where the court is considering whether or not regulatory burdens on abortion providers create an undue burden on women's ability to access abortion services. And as Luke mentioned in talking about those two cases, that um the the outcome in the court right now is that those regulatory policies do create an undue burden. But I kind of wonder if that's the ground this will even be fought on anymore.
1: So I think we've moved beyond that because my issue has, and this was like, so RBG actually didn't like Roe. And she was like really notorious for that because she said that it was too sweeping. And she said that something that's that vague is actually like, likely to get broken up piece by piece, which is exactly what we've seen a lot of these challenges is kind of trying to chip away at Roe. I think we're beyond that. I think we're asking the wrong question, which is it's no longer like how can, is Roe gonna be shortened? Are we gonna lose late term abortions? I think we're at the point where for the first time in modern history, the overturning of Roe where all of this, all of these cases were building on Roe, the precedent that it set. And if we say that's no longer precedent, then I think it's dominoes where it won't really matter. I want to hear Luke's. I, I, yeah. Well, and that's so, where I
0: would just real quick. I think that's where I would bring in the Georgia law and and sort of the question changing completely that these the bans on abortion at six weeks, the so-called heartbeat ban bills, Georgia passed one. I think Ohio passed one. That collection of laws, if you have somebody like Barrett on the court who is maybe more willing to throw out precedent. And because she is so beloved by social conservatives, you could imagine that maybe she is willing to do that very aggressively. Does that, you know, that changes the scope of the debate, right? And about how, if we have a landmark case that rolls back abortion rights in this country, it's going to look very different than the ones that have been considered in recent years. Is that, does that sound right, Luke?
2: No, no. <laughs> so like the reason why I say that is people forget that John, Justice John Roberts is still on this court and that he matters. And I really think he doesn't want to do it that way. And the reason why I think that is because he keeps telling us that <laughs> and he keeps telling us that in public and he keeps telling that when he writes opinions. And the, I mean, the scary thing about this situation is that we will have A five solid conservative don't care about the institution of the Supreme Court as an institution just cares about what they want to get done, done, and they can just go past Roberts. But I kind of I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I would be kind of surprised if let's assume I'm right and that Roberts would not just want to outright overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, I'll
1: I'll even give you that. I think you're right on that
2: yeah i think you're
1: putting a lot of faith the next logical person is gorsuch and i think you're putting a lot of faith in gorsuch to vote with roberts
2: so i will come back to gorsuch in a second but like i just would be surprised that a like i know like you can't stop them but i just feel like john roberts is probably someone who can argue very well And he'd probably be like, we cannot overturn Roe versus Wade as a five, four. And I'm not joining your opinion. So if you do it, you're doing it without me. And I just feel like that probably will break someone. And I agree that Gorsage would probably be the person to do it since he actually has very interesting thoughts on privacy. And he seems to not completely hate the, you know, the penumbras and the Griswold, uh, area, uh, you know, path. And, but that's a whole other story that I'm not going to get us into going back to June Magical where, Justice John Roberts, uh, you know, let, let me assure you, he was not being a champion for abortion. He he ruled on uh, June Mechel the way he did. He, I mean, he lays it out very clearly in his opinion, his his concurring opinion, not the majority opinion. The reason that he joined the majority in striking down the Louisiana law is because the lawyers brought in, you know, the state of Louisiana passed the exact same law and brought it before the court again. And the court had already decided that you can't do that. The other really key part of this. And this is where I think Roberts showed you the door that he wants to walk through. And he swung it wide open is he's like, no buggy on either side argued Casey. So I'm not going to talk about that, which is a, you know, a justice's way of saying, Hey, you should argue about this because you didn't. And maybe I would have said something differently had you argued about it. Um, And the thing that is in Casey, as Kyle alluded to is that is where the test for undue burden came from. And there's a big argument in United Health that the basically the difference between Roberts' position and the position of the liberals on the court was when you are seeing if something is undue burden, you should do a balancing test that considers both the cost and the benefits. They are both important, and you should consider both. Whereas Roberts is saying, no, that's not what Casey said. And to be fair to Roberts, Casey did not say that, so he is actually being accurate there what it said is you should see if it's an undue burden and if it's an undue burden, then it fails. And if it's not, then it doesn't. And it doesn't matter if it is a benefit or not. Did that make sense?
1: It, it, you're making sense from like strictly like legal theory. I understand what you're saying.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is what John Roberts engages in.
1: <laughs> no, but let's, but I think like, we're in the weeds too much and I think this is something that like lawyers do a lot is like we have a little bit too much faith in the court and we forget the politics surrounding this and the truth is like Trump would not have been elected without the anti-abortion voting block. These three judges justices now who are on the court were handpicked for this specific issue and like Roberts is
2: now outnumbered. Well, and then, and that, no, I'm, ag- I'm agreeing with you, but I'm just saying that I think their path is going to be different to getting to it.
1: And I think no matter how great of an argument that Roberts makes and how brilliant he is, and I actually like, no matter what anyone says, I think Roberts wants abortion to stay legal. I, I believe that. Um, he's not exactly a champion of women's rights, but I, I do. He This has come up a lot during his tenure and he, he could have pushed it and he did not. But I think like now the dynamics have completely shifted and I don't I don't see any reality where because it it will come down to Gorsuch, it won't come down to Roberts.
0: And this, I think, gets at my sort of non-legal mind here of how much the court seems to have become a political football and that the politics of this may reign over the legal arguments that y'all are talking about because progressives will be infuriated if following the 2016 gambit by McConnell to not consider Obama's final nominee and then to give, then to put a third Trump nominee on the court that then shortly after that, there would be this wild swing in you know, access to abortion in this country because they take on a case based on one of the really aggressive laws like the Georgia law or the Ohio law or whichever one ends up getting there. And the, you know, a block of five conservatives on the court, you know, if they're feeling aggressive and they say, you know, politics and the legacy of our institution be damned, we're here to outlaw abortion and we're going to do it. That, to me, raises this sort of existential question of the court of, like, them, you know, five conservatives taking that step and then what the backlash to that is. There'd obviously be a political backlash on on Republicans in Congress and, and you know, up and down the ballot. But, like, what, in your view, if the court is really aggressive, particularly on this issue— you know, what, is, what are the implications there for like the legitimacy of the court and whether or not both Republicans and Democrats, progressives and conservatives throw up their hands and say, this is just another political institution. This is no longer something separate from Congress or the executive.
1: I mean, it's always a political, political institution to an extent. Um, it gets to kind of ride above, I think, the dredges in certain other parts of politics because of the lifetime appointments and the fact that it's extremely difficult to impeach a justice. Um, but I think it's always been somewhat political. Um, so I don't think that's anything new, but I do think that as Congress has gotten more partisan and have become more obstructionist on both sides, I think the court has become more important because that's where a lot of like these decisions are coming from. Like At any point, Congress could have passed a DACA law <laughs> like on a, theoretically, but even though like it's extremely popular where 80% of the country now like wants DACA to pass, they haven't been able to do it. And the court's the one that saved it this year, even if it's only temporarily. So I think my point is that the court has moved into a more prominent role because the other branches have actually gotten weaker to some extent because they haven't been able to work through some of this, some of these things that, that could be legislation. Um,
2: that should be legislation. I mean, and and really that's even the court's view. Like if there's anything that most of the justices hate unanimously, it's, it's having to be the only branch that is capable of dealing with these issues. Um, I, I, I think that is one thing they would vote nine zero two. I mean,
0: to be more direct though, what a, a sudden aggressive shift the overturning of Roe and the endorsement of one of these really aggressive anti-abortion laws, would that like break the court as we know it?
2: I, I, think, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think Mitch McConnell has already broken America and that we're already at the point where fundamental change is going to happen and the court is a symptom of Mitch McConnell, not a cause of what is to come post him. And I, I think at this point, like there needs to be a shakeup of our institutions. And if reform of the Supreme Court needs to be part of that equation, that's something the Supreme Court has a hand in deciding, in the sense that if they keep pushing further and further away from what people believe is needed for the country and the direction we're trying to go in, then they can make themselves an irrelevant institution if they wish.
1: Well, and I think I, I think Luke's absolutely right. Um, in that. I think the the Garland scandal. So many people lost faith in the court because of that. And almost every time a major decision comes out, it's brought up again. It's like, well, Garland would have voted this way. And I think there's so much about like what could have been and what should have been. And McConnell messed with the legitimacy of the court when he made the decision not to see, not to give Garland a hearing, um, because he you didn't advise and consent. And so you kind of threw that away and now it's become more conservative than what it should have been. But I will say just, I guess in closing, and this is one bit of optimism or in closing on this question anyway, but like one bit of, I don't know, optimistic outlook is I think we were also really spoiled by a balanced court (laughs) and we had it for a lot of years, but the reality is that that actually hasn't been historically how the court has been. It's really swung right and left and so even though this is going to be a different phase, it's not all that abnormal for history.
0: So one final area where I think progressive court watchers lose a lot of sleep at night is the possibility that a 6-3 conservative court, it it could potentially have these big implications on on social issues as we've discussed, but what is a little under discussed for some progressive court watchers is the possibility that a six three court could basically serve to block all kinds of progressive economic ideas, uh, including potentially deeming a Medicare for all law invalid, any kind of environmental regulations that could come from anything that amounts to a green new deal legislation. Those could be found to be invalid. Um, and the the worst version of this that's often called back to is this this uh Lochner era of the court where the court invalidated a lot of FDR's new deal uh regulations things like minimum wages limits on uh the number of hours people could work uh limits on the the ages people could work basically legislation that was trying to end child labor what do y'all think about the possibility of returning to this sort of like pure libert- libertarian view of economic regulation that that I think in its most aggressive form basically deems any kind of regulation of the economy invalid and, and the court would overturn
1: it? I think we're not quite in that, in the depths of despair there. Um, maybe Luke will disagree with me, but again, historically, even in like the most conservative or moments and like throughout history like the court is supposed to interpret laws not create them and I think even though there have been times when they've overturned laws and said like no that's unconstitutional overall it's pretty rare it usually they do they don't like taking power because that like delegitimizes their branch maybe we are entering a new phase and it really is going to be that doom and gloom but I actually for what it's worth, and as much faith as I've lost, I still think that I have more faith in the Supreme Court than any other branch of government. And I don't think that's going to change.
2: I I think it really does depend. And also, we've taken it for granted that Amy Coney Barrett's going to get on the court and there are a lot of things that can be done to prevent that. If uh, this show has terrified you, <laughs> then please do those things. Um, because it, it definitely is not a 100% done deal, but just, this is where I come back to Starry decisis with her in like her viewpoint that we should turn over everything that we don't like basically is the, sh- you know, short version. I'm not giving her full justice. I'm sure. Um, but like that view leads you down some scary places, and you know the probably the biggest precedent that uh, has defined so much of American executive law that she's also hinted that she's against is uh, the idea of Chevron deference. Which to not uh, litigate this whole thing um, again because uh, I have done it before. The the short version is basically you know, a lot of things are complicated and it's okay if instead of having Congress write every single detail of a law that they just defer some of it to uh, the um, executive branch. Like, that's fine. That's not gonna hurt anybody if the executive branch makes some of those decisions. Like, we don't need the Congress like making how many like particles of pollution can go in the water before it's bad. Like, the EPA can do that. Um, And- And 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 so basically, this is something that uh, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, this is one area where I'm very upset with him. Uh, he he is not a big fan of Chevron deference, despite his mom uh, being a big part of the reason that happened. Um, and yeah, he uh, you know there's there's lots of um, I mean, just Congress has proven its ability to not be able to get the simplest things done. And if we start asking Congress to do literally everything and make the executive branch somewhat unusable, I guess is the way to think about it. Like, I, I don't think that will lead to great places. Um, And and so there could be some really, really big shakeups that we haven't spent enough time thinking about, but I'm, I'm hoping that that is not going to be one of them.
0: Luke, you alluded to this. A lot of this conversation does assume that Barrett will be on the court. Um, in some ways, it felt like the battle of keeping a third Trump nominee off the court was lost when enough Republican senators said they would even consider a nomination and would abandon the, the so-called standard that Republicans established in 2016. But maybe that question is not fully answered yet. I mean, do you think that there's a possibility that Barrett does not end up on the court? And if she doesn't, what sorts of tools are available to Democrats in Congress and progressive activists from the outside who would who would prefer that she not get this seat on the court.
2: Well, the first thing I would say is what I've said to a lot of my friends who've asked me that similar question, which is, I think the Republicans get this seat, but they get nothing else and that they just. You know, and I'll give you a quick example, I think I've discussed on the show previously, I've had to talk about these things so much lately, I forget who I say what to but. Like just look You're at so Lindsey popular, Graham, Luke. like Lindsey Graham was a very popular senator from South Carolina for a long time. He had a lot of um, easy races where he was able to win re-election and remained very popular in his state and outside of it. And now he is in a really, really tough battle for his reelection uh, with someone whose career and, you know, like no variety are significantly less than his. And I don't think that's an accident. From, you know, the Lindsey Graham of pre 2016, and all during 2016, really, the one that we've seen since Trump has taken the office of president is just a completely different person. And like just being completely hypocritical and embracing like taking whatever you can by whatever he means and saying, I have no principles, (laughs) you know, I don't think that's a great pitch for a political party. Um, And while the base loves it and while their strong supporters like it, I don't think anyone else does. And so even if they get this seek, I think it opens up a huge can of worms for them. So that's, that's thing one, but thing two, I mean, you know, it feels pointless sometimes, but like actually calling your congressperson and writing them letters or emails and telling them you don't want them to do this like matters because I mean I've worked for many politicians, not you know federal ones but state ones, and it's just like there are issues. I won't go into which ones, but like there are issues that like did not matter to me, did not matter to many people, but we got a bunch of emails about them, and so we're like, you know what, we're going to do something about this because someone shook our tree about it and was like, hey. You should care about this. And so we decided to care about it. And and so, I mean, and this is kind of common sense is like as a, as a public official, you are desperate for any indication of what the public believes on issues, right? And if you aren't hearing from people, you just kind of assume they don't care about that issue. Whereas if people are sending you stuff and they're saying hey i really strongly don't agree with what you're doing here then that tells them like oh people actually pay attention to this issue and care about it um so i I really think you should you should take into more consideration of the effect you can have by reaching out uh and seeing you know just seeing seeing what you can do
1: yeah i think i'd piggyback off of that and say if shit feels real it's because it is Like, we're going to lose DACA, we're going to lose Roe, unless we get a really liberal Senate and we keep the House, you know, and unless, like, a lot happens in this election that we can protect those things with legislation, and that's, like, the beautiful things about checks and balances is this is not the only branch, but this branch is going to change a lot, and it's been our protector for years, and we don't have that anymore, which means, like, if if you ever wanted to mobilize, now is the time to do it.
0: Well, I think that adds an additional layer too. that the fight is not only about the outcome for this specific seat, but the outcome for Congress and the presidency, um, you know, in the election that is coming in short order. Well, Tori uh, and Luke, I really appreciate y'all getting together today, uh, walking through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy and and what the future of the court's going to look like. Uh, Tori, thanks for joining the podcast.
2: I always love being on, guys. Thank you so much.
0: And Luke, thank you as always.
2: Yep. Happy to be here. Always. Uh, ho- hopefully, uh, soon we will have better news to discuss. One day. <laughs> I- I'm still hopeful righty, you All
0: right, y'all. We'll talk to you again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.